Yes! I'm back! And what a thrill it is to be back in the saddle hosting the Independent Minded Podcast. Heard whenever I can help it on iTunes, iHeartRadio, and wherever else you can find it. And as loyal followers of this podcast probably know, I moved my whole life from New York City to Washington, D.C. last month. Left the bubblegum radio world after two decades, half of which I spent producing at the legendary Elvis Duran and the Morning Show. Legends in their own mind, at least. So yeah, left the nest, familiar surroundings, uh, shed my security blanket this past summer for new digs, and a new career in public radio over at the Mecca NPR. Get those nerds! Nerd! Nerd! Which was all by design, because as much as that security blanket keeps you warm and cozy, it can also suffocate you, and I was definitely finding it hard to breathe. Love those guys, love most of the people there, can't say enough great things about the man, Elvis Duran, super sexy, Uh, but it was time to go. And I've been pleasantly surprised to see that a lot of you still care. The outpouring of direct messages and emails and love notes and winky face emojis since I left town last month has really meant a lot. And with most big life changes, the big move was also an opportunity to examine how much I love doing the podcast. And if it was worth it to continue, uh, most people in my industry are motivated by two things, money and numbers. And the old Independent Minded Podcast hasn't exactly been blowing the roof off in those areas. But considering what the podcast is about, I think that's kind of fitting. Don't you? Don't answer that. I can't hear you. So the short answer is yes, I'm continuing. Obviously, the podcast uh, didn't get a lot of love over at iHeart, which I get. But like most things in my professional radio career, I found a way to make the podcast work for me. You probably know I've been an indie musician since my college days, released nine albums in various bands, been signed, been dropped, been hopeful, been hopeless. You suck! And the industry has changed so much since I started that talking to bands who thrived in the old system and who are still killing it in the new system, or maintaining at least, has been super interesting and really been a thrill. Plus, like most musicians, I am a nerd for other people's music. pretty much my oxygen, so when you get to talk to a Henry Rollins, or even a Justin Furstenfeld from Blue October, or even a young artist who's just getting started and is two decades younger than you, there's always something new to learn. And yeah, selfishly, I get to get backstage for a few shows and watch my idols do their thing. I get a ton of music sent my way. I've made a lot of new friends from doing this podcast, and I definitely love it. So if you're listening to this right now, I am in your debt. Checks in the mail. Thank you for continuing the journey down in our nation's capital where Trump is my new Taylor Swift. And that is not a compliment to either. Been to a couple of cool shows down here and things here at the podcast are a bit different now. The bands used to come to me. Now I come to them. So maybe I can get Uber or Lyft to sponsor this thing in exchange for some mentions. Hint, hint, wink, wink. And it's also cool because I bought a Tascam and I plugged in some microphones. I'm learning how to do remote interviews now. Getting to talk to some more of my idols who come through town and hope to scout out some local talent here in the district as well. Speaking of D.C., they call it the DMV down this way. And my whole life I've only known DMV as the last place on earth you'd ever want to wait in line at. But here it stands for D.C., Maryland, Virginia. So I'm learning to be less afraid of that abbreviation. And if you're an independent artist from the DMV or you're making your way through town and you want to come on the podcast, you know the drill. Email me, ron at baldfreak.com or hit me up on social, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's at baldfreakmusic or via my website. All the goodness right there at baldfreak.com. You can also hear archived episodes of the podcast on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash baldfreak. And also, if you've been listening for a while, or if you're just listening now for the first time and you like what you hear, do me a flavor. 
Leave a nice short and sweet review on iTunes. Subscribe, tell your friends, tell your grandma. We're 80 episodes in now, and this has been a true labor of love for me, and I couldn't do it without your support. Sharing is caring, so thank you. I love you. I want to make out with you. I'll buy you a beer. I'll walk your dog. I'll walk your beer. I'll buy your dog. I'll have your babies. Whatever it takes at this point to spread the word. Okay, that's enough online panhandling for one episode. Let's talk about my special guest for episode 80. He plays the bass, and he's one of the founding members of a band I've long admired, Santa Barbara, California's Toad the Wet Sprocket. If you grew up in the 1990s, as I did, you certainly know them. They had a few big singles, some radio hitch, most notably All I Want and Walk on the Ocean. A lot of their songs were featured on big TV shows and feature films from that era. And like most bands who've been around for almost 30 years, they went away for a while and now they're back, all the way back. They released a new album in 2013 called New Constellation. They put it on an EP a couple years later, and they were in town on tour at the Birchmere in Alexandria, Virginia. Very cool venue. And I got to go backstage before the show and talk to Dean Dinning, the bass player of Toe the Wet Sprocket. And if you only know the singles, do yourself a favor. Dig deeper, in particular the albums Pale and Fear. They're two of my all-time favorite albums. I think a lot of people unfamiliar with the music from this band judge and maybe even dismiss them by their name. Not the greatest name, let's face it, but definitely unique. Dean and I talk about Toad's long and storied career, my first time seeing them at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City back in 1994, building a community and jamming with Steve Perry. blows my mind and warms my hair metal loving heart, dropping names of decent to bad bands of the era, from Warrant to Poison to Ugly Kid Joe. Let's kick it off with the title track from the new Constellation album, then my conversation with Dean Dinning from Toe the Wet Sprocket, right here on Independent Minded. We're back, let's go! It's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast, it's Ronnie Dalzo's amazing podcast, he's talking to people who make our music. Plugging their projects, making them famous, helping them out just by making them talk about all the cool shit that they do. Too late. 
backstage at the Birchmere in Alexandria. We are in Alexandria? We are in Alexandria, Virginia. Yes. I'm now in D.C., and the Independent Minded Podcast continues on. And I'm thrilled to have Dean Dinning from Toe the Wet Sprocket. We're backstage at the Birchmere. How are you, sir? I am excellent. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, you were going to be here either way. I was. It's true. It's actually great for me to be here. It is. Actually, you were you were right on time, very <laughs> punctual, and, and you've already got lots of points in my book. I appreciate that. I was early, actually. And I, it's and fantastic. I walked around Crystal City in Arlington because I was way too early, and I figured yeah. you guys had other things to do. This is the first time I'm actually backstage doing an interview, so I don't even have this question on my list. What's a pregame ritual for Dean and Toe the Wet Sprocket? Well, I've been doing a nightly thing where I, I go on the bus and I, I listen to a half-hour uh, meditation app oh. just to get very focused. How zen. I love it. I think it's great. It really puts me in a great frame of mind, and, and when I hit the stage, I'm completely focused on what I'm doing. Very nice. All right. Well, I want to give you a little background. Ron Scalzo is a Toe of the Wet Sprocket fan. The first time I saw you guys was in 1994 at the Roseland Ballroom in New York City. And one of the things that I still remember about that show, it was probably maybe like the second or third show I'd ever seen in a medium sized to small club was that there were girls jumping on my shoulders and we were pretty up close to the front of the stage. I remember that show. Um, Do you? Do you that remember was, me being That was there? at the Roseland. That was wild. Um, that was a crazy night. I think that we had performed on the Letterman show that same night. And ah. so it was a very hectic day for us, but it was also kind of you know, strangely triumphant to actually go and do a TV show. We had to have two sets of gear. One set was on the uh, on the Letterman show stage, and then our crew had all of our regular gear set up over at the Roseland. And the Roseland was right across the street from, from the Late Show. That's right. So we did the Late Show at 5.30, and then um, packed up and went literally across the street where our show was already underway. The opener was already on, and we just went in the dressing room and and kind of got ready, and then and then hit the stage again for a sold out show at the Roseland in New York after just doing, you know, one of our favorite TV shows. It was a pretty high moment. So essentially, let it was pretty was great. Your sound check for the show. It was, yeah. <laughs> I think the opening act. Correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe you don't remember. It was a band called the Grays. Yes, I do remember the Grays. Wow, I was right. Man, that's 25 years later. All yeah. those some of the brain cells still exist. Yeah, that was one of the guys from the band. And Jellyfish, I think, was in the grave. I did not know that. Yeah. 1994, 20, we're almost 25 years later, a quarter of a century later. I know. Are there still girls going to be jumping on my shoulders? The Birchmere is a very respectable joint. It's a kind of a listening room environment. But I think by the end of the show, there, there might be some actual girls jumping on people's shoulders. All right, that's my cue to leave. It could happen. <laughs> I mean, good on you for it. But for me, it was a little uncomfortable back in 94. I'm a little more curmudgeonly now. It's been a quarter century, but uh, I'll try to stick it out to the very end and hope for the best. Yeah, that's when you'll see it. You guys met in high school 30 years ago, around 30 years ago? Yeah, three of us graduated in 1985. Glenn was a freshman the year we graduated, and we were all in theater arts, um, which I suppose is kind of the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how old you are if you're all cast in a play together. <laughs> we were hanging out. Uh, we, we were having some laughs, kind of like the same things. You know, there was the Monty Python connection. We, you know, we were all pretty nerdy and, um, you know, just kind of started jamming 
originally in Randy's basement on the weekends, and that really uh, turned into this band over time. There was no notice placed in any, uh, you know, little local rag newspaper that said, you know, bass player wanted or auditions for, for a band. There have never been any auditions for this band. This band was always just people hanging out and then, well, you know, let's try and make some music and see what happens. And this is what happened. Now, I read online that you guys lost an open mic talent competition. We did. Early on. Yeah, we did. Do you remember um, who you lost to? I think it was a local hard rock band. They might have been called Overdrive, but I don't, I don't really remember. My band lost the competition, a similar competition, to a band called the Armadillos. And I've, I've always held that as a... Yeah. Like a reverse badge of honor. You know, uh, a badge of shame. You know, you, you can't really go by that because the uh, the judging criteria at these Battle of the Bands, it's not really that firm. I think there's a lot of wiggle room and a lot of personal preference in there. And and in those days, I mean, you got we were coming out of the 80s and Sunset Strip and Hard Rock and and you know, Poison and Motley Crue and all that yeah. stuff. So it was like, ball, baby. you know? <laughs> um, there was no pressure to be like them, but at the same time, they kind of had the edge because of with the theatrics and all. Right. All right. Well, it looks like you've done better than Overdrive or whatever that band Whatever that became. I, I'm, not even, I'm not even sure it was Overdrive because I, I think now that I'm thinking about it, Overdrive became Ugly Kid Joe at one point. Wow. Man, yes. you're throwing out the obscure 90s band references Ugly Kid here. Joe, uh, probably <laughs> best known for their cover of Cats in the Cradle. Oh, please don't remind which me. Which absolutely uh, slays. <laughs> the uh, the original version of that song. I'm sure. Um, you know, I'm sure Harry Chapin would agree with you. I I think so. You released your uh, first album in the late '80s, Bread and Circus. You made it for six hundred dollars. Correct. Then you upped the ante with one of my favorite albums of all time, Pale, for six thousand dollars. Yes. And then you signed with Columbia. Fear comes out in '91. That's your breakthrough album. I read that you refused to re-record the Pale album for Columbia Records. Is that right? You know that is sort of part of the legend, but the truth is they never asked us to. And that's one of the reasons why we went with Columbia. We talked to a lot of labels and the conventional wisdom and, and you know what a lot of people would say was of course we'll re-record the first two two albums and and put them together into one sort of super album, which we'll release first. But uh, when we talked to them, they saw what we were trying to do. We wanted to come out kind of slow and get out on the road and open for people and build up a fan base. And as far as they were concerned, these two records were the perfect way to do that. It wasn't necessarily about making either of those records a huge hit. It was about connecting with an audience and um, getting out on the road, you know, behind an album and starting to build a fan base. And by the time the third record came around, Fear is the third record, we did, we had a fan base and they were, and, and they were ready. So the timing was really fortuitous because there was a moment when pop radio suddenly became modern rock radio. Right. And all of the programmers needed to find things that would satisfy the alternative rock, modern rock sort of leaning fans without disorienting their their previous audience, there's nothing that's really that alternative about our band. I, I often say the most alternative thing about us is the name. Other than that, it's two <laughs> guitars and bass and drums and three guys singing harmony. I mean, what's so controversial about that? What's alternative about that? That's like the most classic model for a rock band ever. 
Well, you guys were young when you got signed. I mean, Glenn was like 17, right? Yes. Can you elaborate more on, you know, it sounds like a mature outlook to have even back then. Can you elaborate on your experience with Columbia? Was it, obviously you had a, a long history with them. We did. Um, that, they're the only record label we've ever been on. Um, they came to the table rather late. It seemed odd because um, the head of ANR on the West Coast was a guy named Ron Oberman, and the other band that he had just signed, getting back to 80s hair metal, was Warrant. Nice. Um, you know, with uh, Janie Lane and uh, Cherry Pie and, and all that kind of thing. So it didn't seem like it was going to be a natural fit for us. Alternative was starting to happen, and they had just created an alternative music department, and they were looking to sign people who, who they thought would, uh, would carry this unit of the label forward. They signed us, and Poidog Pondering, do you remember? You don't remember I do them? remember, do you remember them? them. Yes. And, um, and there were a few other signings right away, <laughs> wow. but we were one of the first, and they got in some very influential college radio programmer guys like uh, a guy named Todd Bisson, who became a friend of ours, and Josh Rosenthal, who was a, a good guy. It really came down to the people at the end of the day, and, and some of these people, it seemed like they didn't even want to like us, but we kind of won them over just by hanging out with them and, and being stuck in the car with them on the way to radio stations, and <laughs> Even if there was other music that was cooler than us, um, they liked us as people. So they understood what we were trying to do. And, and when they saw it start to happen, they were thrilled. Now, like most fans from that era, I got turned on to Toe the Wet Sprocket from the song All I Want, which is on Fear. I also read that that song almost didn't make the album. There was a feeling that that song was too pop. Yeah, can we talk about that? Because another song, "Good Intentions," is another song also, I read. Also, that from, you left off. That the was album. from the Fear Sessions. That was left off the record because it was deemed too pop. So, what is it about the philosophy of this band where it's like, ah, oh, this is a single. We don't want to put it on the record. Don't bands want to like have singles? That's what it came around to eventually. Is like, you know, it's too strong of a song even if it might take you in a direction that you're not comfortable with, sometimes it's good to be pushed in a direction you're not comfortable with because you, you, you might get something unexpected. And you might be something that you don't even know that you are. Well, you're trying to do this one thing, but it's coming out sounding like something else. We weren't trying to be pop, and yet us trying to do this thing that felt very natural for us it happened to come out in the form and the shape of a great pop song. And, you know, thank goodness that the record label saw that. It was the third single released from Fear, so mm. they didn't see it right away. Um, we released two other singles before it, and then eventually they said, well, you know, before we send them back into the studio to do another record, let's just see what happens if we send All I Want to Top 40 Radio and... Who knows? Maybe it'll work. And then it was during the uh, Olympics that year that NBC actually used All I Want in a promo for a television show called The Round Table, which only made it to three episodes. But there's a sort of a 
a rule in the music business that it's better to have your song in the trailer than it is to have it in the film because more people see the trailer. Right. Well, that turned out to be true. And as we know, pop songs have to hit a certain level of saturation for the, the public to even know whether they're ever going to like it or not. And that promo that featured All I Want, which people assumed was going to be the theme song of the show, thank goodness it wasn't. Um, <laughs> I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. You wouldn't get uh, no. yeah, residuals. But right? um, the promo was played like crazy and the song started to go up the charts. I think it just got out there enough that people started wondering what it was and that people got curious. And, and after the promo ended, after the Olympics ended, they needed to find that song. So a trailer for the show Roundtable. Yeah, yeah, the Roundtable on NBC. It, play, it was, was played endlessly during the Olympics. What was Roundtable about? Do you have any idea? I think it was in the vein of Party of Five. It was a young adult kind ah, of okay. kind of a WBCW kind of predecessor. You know, young people at a crossroads, you know, <laughs> trying to decide what they're going to do with the rest of their lives sure. and doing it. Seated at a round table. No, I, I don't. I don't even. <laughs> and it know, didn't I don't know if there succeed. There was a round table. I, I don't. I don't. It's amazing that it didn't succeed. It was probably that the concept was not entirely focused Understood. enough. But they had a great song for the trailer. You know, if the show had been as good as the song, <laughs> history might have been different. This is a good segue because on top of the singles, I'd say that uh, the band staying power, thanks to a lot of your songs, have been throughout the years in popular TV shows and films, Friends, Empire Records, Dawson's Creek, there's another uh, coming of age Dawson show. Dawson Leary lost his V-card to All I Want. Did he? he oh, did. I never watched that show, so now yeah. spoiler alert. Poor Jen. Since Columbia owns the masters to those albums, you guys are kind of working around a way to continue to license those songs by re-recording those songs? Is that what you're we doing? We did that a number of years ago. We created our own greatest hits album of masters that we now control. It's about being able to control the master and the publishing. We got a, a full reversion on our publishing catalog, which is very unusual. But um, when we got signed, our lawyer got that for us because thankfully we had a few people vying for the publishing. So when we got the rights back to our catalog, on the advice of our uh, of our business managers, he came to us and he said, because uh, he also um, he also does the books for David Crosby, okay, and he said, you know, guys, just last week a company, a lawnmower company, came to David Crosby and and they wanted to use uh, a song called "Almost Cut My Hair." in a lawnmower commercial. And then they told him that they weren't going to use the song because the rights to use the master recording were going to cost $350,000. Sure. And so David Crosby said, hold on a minute. Give me two days. I'll go in the studio. I'll make you a version that sounds exactly like the original, and I'll give it to you for two fifty. dollars Ah, so it seemed like a smart business move to be able to control both the master side and the uh, publishing side. But now we're back working with Sony again because we've done a really nice reissue on vinyl of both the Fear and the Dulcinea albums. And we actually went back to the original master recordings and recut new vinyl masters of those. So that's a collaboration with Sony. Those are, once again, the original masters, but that's for vinyl only. Oh, great. My mom just bought me a turntable, so I'm going to have to pick it. them up. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the new Constellation album came yes. out in 2013. You funded that album via Kickstarter. We did. And 
you received five times the goal that you set out to make. You met the goal in less than 24 hours. How does that make you feel about the current state of how to make a record, crowdfunding, the monetization of music, et cetera, et cetera? It's great if you already have fans. Yes. <laughs> okay. If you have a large number of people out there who are foaming at the mouth and the idea of you making new music is so appealing to them that they want to get, you know, the gold package on your Kickstarter, which include, I mean, we did all kinds of great stuff. It was fun. We created some, some real nice experiences. Uh, Glenn did some songwriting, uh, sort of Q and a things with people. I did a couple of bass lessons for people. Oh, nice. Um, there was a pool of people who were just absolutely ready to spring into action and support us. And I think for a band in our position, it was the perfect thing to do because we have saw other people do things like go and, and make a deal with a major. And then, you know, if the record doesn't do great in the first couple of weeks, see you later, it's gone. Sure. We were operating kind of as our own record label from a pool of, of money that was generated. We did everything that a label did. You know, a lot of labels these days, no one has staff anymore. They're all hiring stuff out. You know, if they need stuff promoted to radio, they're hiring it out. So we just hire the same people that they're hiring. We thought we could do it for $50,000 minimum uh, to get the record out. And we hit that in 20 hours. And then we started giving these stretch goals to people who had uh, supported us early on. We said, well, if we get to 100,000, we'll, um, we'll record a live acoustic EP in the studio and give you that for free. Nice. And then we hit $100,000 and we sent, we just you know, sent a link out to everybody. It didn't cost anything. And then we said, okay, well, let's do something crazy. If we hit $200,000, we'll send you a live EP from the current tour which we were recording every night. It's great. You can have Pro Tools on a laptop. We just ran everything through a splitter and compiled everything. And so then we hit 200. And then it, it ended up being around 264,000, which just, when it came down to it, it just sort of barely covered everything. But it did make all of the initial product. And we were able to spend some money promoting songs to radio and, and things like that. So that was good. It's no less expensive than it ever was. <laughs> of course. To, to do this stuff. The way you want to do it. The way right. you want to do it. Without yeah, it's, cutting corners. It's, it's not cheap. Now, it sounds like you're using the platform to its maximum potential. And like you said, as an already established band who continued to tour over the past 10, 12 years, you have that advantage. But for young yeah. artists, I know you you kind of have a side thing going on where you manage bands and you're doing stuff. I work with a lot of young artists. As an established artist in a big band, what advice do you give for an artist who doesn't have that advantage? <sighs> You know, social media is so important these days. What we learned from Kickstarter is also the same thing that people are using social media for. It's also, uh, you know, part of what we've experienced in doing this band long term is that part of what people like about the band is the actual camaraderie and the people and the community of other like-minded folks that are all at the same show. It's, you know, when we go to a concert, we're not experiencing it by ourselves. It's the communal experience. And that, and that's what really bowls you over when you go to a, go to a show and you're all feeling the same thing at the same time. That's really powerful. Yeah, man, sure. So it turns out what people want from artists is they want to feel like they're getting special sort of access to your mind or 
or your, you know, a little bit of your life. They don't want things that feel like they're, you know, preformed or coming from management. What works is when, when people, you know, like I love it when, when an artist will, you know, Matt Nathanson is a, is a great friend of ours. And he just, it looks like he just bit it on his bike in San Francisco. And he posted a photo of this wound on his face. Ouch. But that's the kind of thing that's real. Social media can be so contrived, but when it's real, people love it. And I just tell people to, to be themselves and try to capture it in some way. And what you said before about allowing fans access. Yeah. You, you just described why I do this podcast. For me, it's about... I mean, yeah, I've interviewed a lot of bands who I kind of grew up admiring, but even younger bands too, like I want to hear their story. I don't just want to hear their music. Right. And if you're doing social media, but you're not giving a a piece of yourself or showing the embarrassing things that happen or whatever, I mean, within, you know, within limits, but I mean, that's, that's what really endears us to people. And, and, uh, and we've always been pretty good about that. When you do this over the long time and you look back at it, 30 years of this band, it starts to look like we've built a community right on. of people, you know, and that's that, that. I couldn't be more thrilled. Well, I'm happy to be part of it. <laughs> I'm a child of the 80s. And speaking of social networking, I couldn't help but notice on your Facebook page, on your Twitter account, you were hanging with the legend Steve Perry. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? How did that come about? Well, that was not just completely out of the blue. Um, We have a friend from Santa Barbara who works with him and has been working at his home studio recording songs with him for a long time. Um, I don't know if if there's a record ready to come out or, or, or what's going on, but he's also been fiddling around with putting a a band together and singing live again and seeing how it goes. He's not going to rejoin Journey. I don't know any of that stuff. Yeah, it's always been Um, kind of a mystery. But he was there jamming with his guys at a an unnamed rehearsal space in Los Angeles. Uh. He knew that we were there and he had Journey were signed to Columbia when we were signed to Columbia. Okay. And I had heard from people that Steve Perry loved our songs and loved our music. You know, when I told my wife that, she's like, oh, well, that's no surprise. I mean, listen to Journey and they listen to Ted Scott, you know, great songs and big harmonies. No surprise. Right. Right. And so he was really interested in what, because we have some interesting technical things that we do to keep our show on the road. One of them is this sort of monitor system we have that allows everybody to run their own monitor mixes off of iPads. and keeps us from having to bring a monitor person out on the road. Nice. And he was very interested in that because, you know, he's been out, he hasn't, he hasn't been doing it in a long time and he wants to keep up with the technical he's been in sort balls. of things. So he was in with our sound engineer picking his brain. John, uh, who mixes us, we were doing a tour rehearsal and then we started playing All I Want. And by all accounts, he just sort of lost it and ran out of the room and (laughs) came out and started singing with us because he was just he was overcome with joy at hearing this song yeah. and couldn't stop himself. How did you guys react? Were you just like Steve Perry singing our songs? <laughs> I, um, first I soiled myself. Yeah, you got to be a little bit of a fanboy. And, um, but you know what? He <laughs> couldn't be sw- a sweeter person. Right. And um, I was able to tell him all of the 
everything that I've thought to myself over the years. If I ever meet Steve Perry, I'm going to tell him this. Yeah. You were know? you cool? Like, were you cool with him? Um, we were Even totally though you soiled cool. yourself? <laughs> totally cool. I did not know. Now, I managed not to soil myself too badly. Uh, but he, he couldn't have been sweeter. And, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about... Uh, uh, you know, we had been on the same label all those years ago, so sure. we knew a lot of the same people. So it was, it was, uh, yeah, yeah we, we did, but he was just very complimentary of, of us. And it was just absolutely thrilling right to, to, to be next to that guy. I, there he was. I mean, and he, God, he's just one of the greatest voices ever. Absolutely. I agree. Well, uh, I went back after that day and I went back and I listened to some journey and, and, and he's got this, I think it's in the physiology of his head. Actually, he's got like an overtone in his singing voice that nobody else has. Yeah. And it's always <laughs> present. And I think it's just bone structure. It's like in Jurassic Park where they model the the shape of the dinosaur's nose and and try to make it honk the he's same got way. A unique you know, skull. you'd have like someday when you know when when he's passed away or whatever, they should he should, they should give his body to science and, and they should study there. his head to figure out where that overtone comes from because whatever it is, we need more they of that. They got to harness we that, Steve Perry that, I think that it could, that's going to bring world peace. <laughs> Speaking of artists who inspire, what made you get into playing the bass guitar? What made you want to play music and be in a band however many years ago? I wanted to play guitar, as most bass players do, but my dad was a bass player and he you know, gave me some sound advice. And he said, you know, son, there are 10 guitar players for mm. every bass player who can sing. I've heard that so before. even though I wanted an electric guitar, he bought me a bass, which sat in the closet for two years. And then I was originally brought into Toad as the keyboard player because I'm a wow. keyboard player. That was my first instrument. I started playing piano at seven and, and oh, organ and things like that. So Glenn and Todd had been writing songs and there were a lot of keyboards on them. And they brought me in to cover the keys and Glenn was playing bass. And then one day we were working on a new song that had not been demoed. And I just picked up the bass and it's like the best bass part for that song just came out of me immediately. Nice. Like without even trying. And that was it? You're, and I was like, like I'm, I'm a bass player now? Was, you know, that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, but he and I were still trading off for a while. Even on the first tour, there were songs where I played keys and he played bass. Up until Fear, then I took over bass 100% of the time. We talked about New Constellation in 2013. Yeah. It's 2018. You had an EP in 2015. What's next for this band? Is there new material coming? Do we have something to look forward to as Toad What's Brought the fans? Yeah, we were going to uh, work on some new material early this year to release before this tour, but we had a series of natural disasters out in California that caused me to have to evacuate for a while. And then Glenn to have to evacuate. Like mudslides, right? He was going to be moving into a place where he was going to be able to work and write, and that place ended up with three feet of mud in it. Jeez. Of course, that's trivial compared to the loss of life and everything else. So I hesitate even to bring it up, but that really sort of delayed things. Now we're on track. Todd and I are planning on, on writing some ideas pretty much as soon as we get back in the fall and getting going on something for next year. I don't think it'll be a full-length album. Even when you do a full-length album, it's hard to, to put more than two or three new songs into a set because we have so many songs that people want to hear and so many albums over the years. So our thought right now is... Um, We'd like to just get in the habit of recording a new song 
uh, and putting out something every three months and maybe doing four songs a year. Just have it be a quarterly release and just have it be based on when we have a great song, we'll record it and we'll put it out. Kind of the way people used to do it in the old in the olden days yeah. when they would release <laughs> singles and then group them together as an album after the fact yeah. and maybe add a couple of bonus tracks or something then and then put it out. We'll try it that way this time. But when you lump 11 songs together and put them out, then boom, that's your story and it's over in yeah, three I, months. I hear you, man. It's the short attention span era. You've got to you stretch spread it out. <laughs> everything out as much as possible. Like that sentence, for instance. Exactly. <laughs> so I think that's the new plan is to get some kind of a quarterly release thing going for new Toad songs. Before we wrap it up, I ran my own record label for seven years. You guys started Abe's Records. Yes. When you started your band. We and did. And you released your first album, Bread and Circus, on that label. Yes. Before Columbia came along. And yes. now you've released your last two releases on Abe's Records. Yes. Who's Abe? We created a character named Abe Chewy Lincoln, um, but we never really <laughs> developed him fully. Um, what do Abe's, you mean you Abe's a character? <laughs> well, because we, we got asked that question a lot. Who is Abe? And, uh, you know, I, I think we liked the, the name Abe is because it felt honest. Okay. And, and we right. felt like what we were doing was honest. And it is. It still is. But uh, the real uh, truth of the story is that there was a, uh, a shoe repair shop in Los Angeles called Abe's Shoe Repair. And we just liked the way the, the logo looked. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Hey, is Abe Chewy Lincoln an honest person? or is I, I, He is the most honest person. All right. <laughs> On that note, uh, Dean Dinning, Toe the Wits Brocket. Looking forward to seeing the show tonight, and thanks for your time, man. Uh, absolute pleasure. All right, thanks. Nothing so loud It's hearing when we lie Truth is not kind When you said neither am I In the air outside so soft
was All I Want by Toe the Wet Sprocket. Earlier in the podcast, we heard New Constellation. Find out more about the band and upcoming releases at ToeTheWetSprocket.com. Follow the band on Twitter and Instagram at ToeTheWetSprocket. I want to thank Monica at Think Press, Annie at Unify Good Management, and Toad's tour manager John Edmond for making the interview possible, and of course, the man himself... Dean Dinning for the great conversation. First, I soiled myself. Next time on Independent Minded, the singer of Cake, John McRae. Who doesn't love cake? I love cake. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>